In July of 2010, Anne Rice, the famous author of the Vampire Chronicles, announced that she was quitting Christianity. She wrote, quote, Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity. My faith in Christ, of course, is central to my life. My conversion from pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity. Can you have Christ without Christianity? Is it possible to follow Jesus without following his followers? Can you really have faith in Jesus and renounce the church? 1 John chapter 1 this morning, we come to a text wherein John wants to teach us about God's holiness and what our fellowship with God is like. I tried to summarize for us the main idea this way this morning. Faith in Christ is personal, but never private. Faith in Christ is personal, but never private. Private and, and I want to exhort you along with John to walk in the light and to enjoy fellowship with God and with one another. You have your outline there before you. We'll spend most of our time on uh, that second part under the subheading B and the rest will go pretty quickly. So if you're trying to figure out how much longer I'm going to talk, uh, it's not, you know, and there's like, like, okay, it's a little afternoon here and we are on part B of point two. Uh, don't fret. We, we will come to a, a fun conclusion. With that in mind, let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word this morning. Father, I ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds this morning. You would help us to think well about what you have spoken to us in your word. Pray that your spirit would give us illumination that we might hear understand, and believe. Pray that you would change our lives with your word this morning. Ask that you would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word once more as you shape us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Since this chapter is animated by the idea of fellowship, I think it's pretty important that we define the word 
before we begin walking to it. And so we ask the question, what is fellowship? And of course, the Greek word for it is koinonia, or as Mike always mispronounces it when we're talking, he calls it koinonia, and he gives me a good laugh. But, but throughout the New Testament, it's defined as meaning communion, or partnership, participation, sharing in. It's living in and with the people of God. It's very interesting. Fellowship in the New Testament is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. But rather, it is a committed partnership in which personal interests are subsumed under the common mission of glorifying God, edifying the saints, and evangelizing the lost. Fellowship in the Bible is not static, it's dynamic. It's, it's going somewhere. And of course, fellowship can happen in places like the fellowship hall over there. It can happen in the main hall right here. It can happen during group outings. But I don't want you to think of the fellowship hall or the main hall here when you think of fellowship. But when you think of fellowship, I would much rather you think something along the lines of Lord of the Rings. Right? The first, first installment of Lord of the Rings is called the, if you don't count the Hobbit, but it is the fellowship of the ring. If you know anything about that, um, and you should, if not, you can pick up Tolkien's book this afternoon and s- start reading. But th- this group of creatures that don't have much at all in common, they come together for a common purpose, to destroy the ring. And they set out on a journey. And things happen. Suffering, there's joy and there's suffering, there's hardship and there's growth. The point is, that I'm trying to make here, is they're going somewhere. Fellowship in the Christian life is like that. It's dynamic. It's going somewhere. It has a point where people from all kinds of different backgrounds, but we are bound together by our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are committed to the mission given to us by Christ, which is to witness to his resurrection, his substitutionary death, witness to his lordship, and to worship him. We are committed to glorifying God, edifying the saints, that's you all, that's Christians, and evangelizing the lost. So we could just really simply summarize fellowship by saying it's how we follow Jesus together. It's how we follow Jesus together. With that in mind, let's look at the first four verses that John pens for us here in this short epistle. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
These sentences are a bit of a grammatical knot, but once we untie them, we marvel at their point, which is actually somewhat simple, but very difficult to understand. John is saying, the everlasting God entered space and time by becoming a man and purchased eternal life for those who fellowship in his son's life, burial, and resurrection by faith. I mean, we, we could paraphrase the beginning this way. The source of life who has existed eternally became a man and showed himself to me and the other apostles and has made a way for all who will trust in God the Son, Jesus Christ, to have fellowship with the God they were made to know. It's true. He appeared to us. We heard his voice. We saw his face. We touched his hands with our own hands. And we proclaim him to you. John is proclaiming Jesus Christ. And it's important that we recognize that Jesus is the basis for the fellowship that he is going to call us into. The goal of him writing is given to us explicitly there in verse 3. Right? He says, we declare these things to you. He's talking about gospel content. So I'm about Christ. We declare these things to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John wants us to have fellowship with God and with one another. And then he says again, he gives us a second purpose clause there in verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so at the end of the day, John's goal in this little epistle is to bring men and women into happy fellowship with God and one another. He's after our joy. Indeed, Jesus is the source of fellowship with God. And so one of the things I think we should do is ask ourselves a question when we come to the end of a pericope such as this. And John has sprinkled these kind of self-reflective opportunities throughout his epistle. But I think the question at this point is, it's quite simple. Do I have fellowship with Jesus? Have I repented of my sins? Have I placed my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection? Have I been baptized Am I committed to a church? Am I following Jesus? If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want you to know that Jesus welcomes you. You were made to know him. He can forgive you of all your sins, all your wrongdoing. He can give you the true happiness and freedom that you're after. He can give you that which you were made for. Relationship with God. John introduces us to the foundation of fellowship, and then he wants to show us the character of fellowship. Look with me at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John tells us he is after the joy of those to whom he's writing. He he wants them to celebrate Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus, to have fellowship with Jesus and with all those who have believed. And then he says the character of this fellowship, how you can know if you're in fellowship with Jesus, is if you're walking in the light. And so we discover he's not only after our joy, but he's also after our holiness. not always immediately evident to us that joy and holiness go together. Happiness and holiness hold hands, but it's true. They always grow together. Well, how, how is that? Well, because we're going to be most happy when we live according to our design, according to what we were made for. And we were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the the rules that God has established in his word that he's given to us teach us how life works best. Indeed, his rules reflect his holy character. That's what this business about about light is, right? Do you see this in verse 5? It says, God is light. And you say, well, where did you get this idea of holiness from? And it's from right there. There's a a common motif throughout scripture where uh, light represents holiness and purity And darkness represents death and sin and decay. And what John is saying, he's saying that God is light. He's absolute, perfect, radiant, pure light. He's he's entirely holy. He's saying if you you are walking in the light, you're going to be like God. Because God is light. You're going to want to love God. That's really a big question for us to answer in this text is what does it mean to walk in the light since it's, it's one of the primary uh, characteristics of following Jesus. We see one of the characteristics is practicing truth. You see it in verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. As you see, John is calling us to do the opposite of walking in darkness and not practicing the truth. He wants us to walk in the light, to be holy as God is holy, to follow God's commandments. And ultimately, this results in our holiness and our happiness growing together. I need to make a quick caveat here so that we don't get confused. We do not earn our relationship with God on the basis of keeping his commandments. Christians keep God's commandments as an expression of our love for God. It's how we love God back. This this isn't burdensome for us. John reflects later on in chapter 5, verse 2, this is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands, for this is what the love for God is. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. 
Indeed, God calls us to live in light of the way he's made us. And when we live life according to God's rules, we're going to find ourselves most satisfied. Think of a fish, right? A fish is free, and it's going to be most happy in a body of water, right? That's just simple because fish, they get oxygen from the water rather than from the air. And so they're, they're good as long as they're in water. But if you take that fish out of the water and you set it in the grass, its freedom is not going to be expanded, but limited. It's going to flop around and probably be on the brink of death. You see, freedom and joy do not come from the absence of restrictions, but from living inside of the right ones. The fish is freest when it's operating according to its design, to its nature. And friends, likewise, we will be freest and find the most joy when we live according to the way we were made, according to the way God made us to worship Him. And so what we find is when we practice the truth, when we walk in the light, is that our joy increases right alongside our own holiness. So walking in the light means, while practicing truth, secondly, we want to talk about walking in the light does not mean. It does not mean sinlessness or perfectionism. You see that in verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So walking in the light, which John is calling us to, cannot mean sinless perfectionism. doesn't mean that. It does mean practicing the truth. That the general trajectory of the Christian life is greater and greater obedience to the word of the Lord. It also means having fellowship with one another loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll see this in verse 7. And I want to tell you, verse 7 is an incredible verse. This is one of those verses that if you are a member here at RVBC, I want you to, if you're into tattoos, get it tattooed on your body somewhere. Right? This is one, if you're not into that, you can put it on your refrigerator. You can carve it on your heart. This is a... a community-forging verse. This is a culture-shaping verse, and culture is nothing more than the embodiment of values. And we, at the end of the day, we want to value what God values. And one of the things that's evident over and over throughout the New Testament and explicit in this verse is that God values our fellowship, not only with Him, but with one another. And that the two ought not ever be divorced. Verse 7 is so, so surprising and, and just so awesome. But listen to it, listen. It's a conditional clause, conditional statement. If we walk in the light, as he himself, that's God, is in the light. So here comes the then part, that's the if part. This is the then part. Then, I put then in there. We have fellowship with one another. That's not what we expect. 
That's not what I expect. When I, when I read this text, I expect if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with Him. Now the fellowship here, the one another here, includes God, but it also includes other Christians. That kind of flies in the face of much of contemporary thinking. But it's, it's there and it's amazing. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So if we walk in the light as God is in the light, if we live like Jesus would have us live, then we are going to be in fellowship with other Christians. This is profound. We could, we could paraphrase it this way. If we do not walk in the light, as God is in the light, then we will not have fellowship with God and his people. And the blood of Jesus does not cleanse us from all sin. See how significant that is? So we get a second, a second kind of diagnostic question which helps us understand the first one that we asked. Do you remember the first one was, do I have fellowship with Jesus? And John's saying, I hope that you do, but if you're trying to figure out if you really have fellowship with Jesus, you need to consider these things. Are you walking in the light? And when you look at verse 7, the question comes, well, do I have fellowship with Jesus? And then here's the second one that's going to help me understand that one. Do I have fellowship with God's people? Do I have fellowship with God's people? John makes explicit for us here the teaching that if we are truly united to Christ in faith, if we are truly part of that universal church, that, that big C capital church, all Christians everywhere for all time, then that reality will show up practically. And it will show up in the little C local church in itty-bitty churches in the middle of Nelson County like this. It'd be similar to, to say, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm not attached to other Christians. I'm not accountable to anyone. I'm not under any authority. I don't belong to a local church. It's similar to saying, well, you know, I belong to the universal gym. And then somebody says, well, where do you go to work out? No, no, I don't belong to any gyms locally. I just, I just have a universal membership. I don't, ever, I don't ever actually go and work out. There's not any skin on it. God doesn't call us to some kind of... <laughs> this is where I get in trouble. <laughs> so this week I was trying to make a return to Amazon, uh, as happens this time of year, and it didn't quite work out the way that I had intended. I didn't have the, the right numbers or digits or whatever. Um, and at the end of the, the conversation, the, the little text chat bubble on the internet, the woman says... Thank you for being part of the prime family. What? Prime family? This is a family I got to pay to belong to. What are you talking about, prime family? What, what the Bible calls us to in terms of our relationships with one another is not like a, a prime family. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't call us to some like, okay, I paid my dues and now I sit on my couch and I order things and I get what I want out of it if I want things out of it and it just sits there. 
The Bible calls us to real community, real blood, sweat, tears, suffering with those who are suffering, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, community. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. Brothers and sisters, do you have fellowship with one another? Or are you part of the the prime family? Because Jesus, listen, Jesus so identifies with his church that to have fellowship with him is to have fellowship with his people. That's why when when Paul is persecuting the church in Acts 9, Jesus doesn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my people? No, what he says is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Jesus so identifies with his church, he can say, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with his church that in Ephesians 3.10, we are told that the church is the manifold wisdom of God. It's how the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So when angels and demons want to know what God's wisdom is like, they look at the church. Jesus so identifies with his church that at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, this one always throws me, it says that the church is Jesus' body. Listen, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's incredible. I mean, when you think about contemporary notions of what the church is, it doesn't sound like this. It sounds tepid. But when we read what the Bible actually has to say about the people of God and about our fellowship with one another, we, what? It takes our breath away. This is amazing. God has a far higher view of the church than any of us. We have to understand the church according to the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Just notice, this word membership is a Christian word. It refers to the parts of Jesus' body. What Paul's saying is that you, Christian, Joe Christian, Jane Christian, you, together in the local church, are my body. You're part of the body of Christ. When I was younger, I don't even know how old I was, well, you know, seven-ish, eight-ish. We'll, we'll say that. You guys won't be able to verify it or not if you fact-check me, so we're going to go seven. Uh, I was around seven, and my dad was preparing dinner, which was a bit, a bit anomalous in my home. He had this big chunk of ham, and he was just working away on it, and he couldn't find any serrated knives, so he had one of those. It's unserrated, the one with just no ridges in it, slippery. Hello, help? Okay, some nods. We're going to go with that. Uh, but he, he's cutting at the, the ham, and the knife slips, and the tip of his finger just clean off. And so I'm a kid. I'm like, oh, there's dad's finger. That's okay, blood. This is weird. Uh, and my mom goes, and she, she grabs that finger, and she gets a little, like, Ziploc baggie, throws some ice in the baggie, throws the tip of the finger in the bag, and says, let's roll on to the hospital. I'm like, mom, this is a little bit morbid, carrying dad's body parts around. It's weird. 
I don't understand why we're doing this. Show like they're going to be able to tell what happened when they look at his hand, right? <laughs> don't need this other evidence. But we get to the hospital, and they take the, the tip of his finger and they sew it on onto the rest of the finger. And slowly over time, over the next few months, my dad regains functionality and vitality in that fingertip. That's almost like the whole event never happened. Friends, to separate yourself from the body of Christ is to make yourself like a fingertip on ice. The longer you separate yourself from God's people, the more vitality and functionality you will lose. The lifeblood of Christians flows to us through the Holy Spirit who has bound us together in the church, in Christ. To attempt to have Jesus without the church is to sever his head from his body. It's grotesque. It doesn't make any sense, brother, sister, to say, I love Jesus, but I hate Christians. Because Christians make up Jesus' very body. I mean, imagine how well it would go over if you said to your spouse, listen, baby, I love you, but I hate your body. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. To love your spouse is also to love their body. You can't make a firm distinction between the two. And yet so many of us try to do it with the church. Ask the question, well, why? Why are there so many Christians out in the world like, like Anne Rice who want to say, I want Jesus, I want the head of the church, but I don't want the body of the church. I think as somebody who spent a lot of my life disconnected from a church, there are two primary reasons. One is ignorance. I just don't know what the Bible teaches about these things. And the other is arrogance. It's this idea that it's my Christianity is just Jesus and me. I mean, the church is there, a little bit like Amazon Prime, if I want to take advantage of it, and a little spiritual five-hour energy drink every now and then, that's okay. But on the whole, I don't need authority or accountability. I can grow in my relationship with Jesus just fine by myself, thank you. That was my position. I was robbing myself of all the delights that come with being part of a church. And I'm so, so thankful for the men and women who came into my life and educated me on what the Bible says about the church and then challenged me to repent of my pride. And I say, listen, Listen, brother, not only do you need other people for your own spiritual life, but they need you. We all have different roles and parts to play. God in his graciousness led, led me to repentance on this issue. I pray that he would lead you to repentance also. If you're one of those who, you know, you just kind of attend church and you're not really accountable to anybody, not really under any authority. Satan and demons love that. They love it. This brings me to a third way that we can cut ourselves off from the church or why people do it is I think we're just self-deceived. 
What I mean by that is when we are following Jesus together in community, in fellowship, and we have that accountability and that outside authority in our lives, we are far less prone to deceive ourselves. The lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil are easily believed in isolation. When you cut yourself off from others, the voice of Satan gets louder. Its influence gets heavier. This is what sin does. It alienates. It separates. And it destroys. When sheep wander from the fold thinking they can survive apart from the flock of God and without shepherds, they keep the wolves well fed. One of my, I don't want to call it favorite books, but a book that I enjoy is uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, there's a, a mature demon. He's kind of a pro at the whole being a demon thing. Uh, and his name is Screwtape. And he writes to kind of like a junior demon whose name is Wormwood about things that he should do to lead what they call the patient or the human to which he is assigned away from Christ and away from the gospel. And this is, this is some of the things he's written. I've squished it together a little bit. Screwtape writes, My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief stay in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has to this point avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune, have boots that squeak, have double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and bare legs. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. 
Christian, make no mistake. The evil one would love for you to separate yourself from the church. Christian, we are at war. And we must act like it. We must pray. We must commit ourselves to one another. We must press on in our commitment to Christ our Lord and His mission. Do not deceive yourself about whether or not you are in the faith. Look at this text and, and see the symptoms. They're really quick. right? Symptoms of walking in darkness is simply not practicing the truth. Saying you're a Christian but not living according to God's word. Second symptom would be not having fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is seen really clearly if you look over in chapter 2, starting in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The person who does not love the people of God is in darkness, walks in darkness, and is self-deceived. They cannot see the truth. This third symptom is they simply do not confess sin. They act as if they don't have sins that need forgiven. Friends, do not live as one who is self-deceived. Do not walk in the darkness. Rather, walk in the light, practicing truth, having fellowship with one another, and confessing sins. That's the third characteristic of walking in the light. Did you see it there in verses 9 and 10? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. Let's not easily skip over, over the combination that happens between verse 7 and verse 9. Let me read it to you again, and, and I want you to just be on the lookout for one dazzling word that makes all the difference. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. All the sin debt that we owe to God is paid by the precious blood of Christ. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus pays all the sins of all who will come to him by faith and confess those sins and say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, I need you as a Savior. Jesus, I need your blood to cleanse me so that I might walk in the light as you are in the light, so that I might live in fellowship with you and your people. This is what you have died to purchase me. Jesus poured out his blood for our sins and purchased for us fellowship with God and one another. Do not cut the gospel. Do not sever Jesus' head from his body. 
Do you understand what a blessing God has given us in the church? How could we not connect ourselves to it? The church is the greenhouse that God has given to us wherein the Christian life is meant to flourish. We will grow in the light of fellowship and we will shrivel in the darkness. So friends, it's important that we recognize faith in Christ is personal but never private. Faith in Christ requires relationship with His people. Therefore, I exhort you, practically, join a church, preferably one that preaches the gospel. Join a church. Walk in the light as God is in the light. Enjoy fellowship with God and with one another. That's what John calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for that great promise of the gospel. That though our sins be as scarlet, you make them white as snow. Though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. Though our sins are piled as high as the mountains, your grace is greater still. We cannot outpace your love for us. We thank you that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that now that we are redeemed sinners, Christ continues to live for us. We thank you that by faith in his substitutionary death, we will share in a resurrection like his. We ask that you would help us to follow him together to your glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.